I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. This episode is the second part of our look at the remarkable story behind how B&M became one of the biggest retailers in the UK. In our last episode, we looked at how Simon Aurora and his brother Bobby bought B&M for £525,000 in 2004 when it was a small discount chain in the north of England. And we heard about how they set about transforming it. In this episode, we'll look at the next part of the story, which is how B&M went from a promising, fast-growing, medium-sized business into one of the biggest companies in the UK and a member of the FTSE 100 with a market value of more than £5 billion. That is a transition that, quite simply, many businesses in the UK haven't been able to make. We'll also hear from Simon Aurora about why he stood down as chief executive. So, back to the story. It's now the 2010s. B&M was growing so fast that over a period of six years, it created more jobs than any other private company in the UK. But keeping a business focused when it is growing that fast is a challenge. Today, B&M employs over 42,000 colleagues. And one of the real positives of B&M's success is that a lot of those 42,000 people are employed on otherwise struggling high streets or sort of, you know, working class neighborhoods or shopping areas where some of the more mid-market or even aspirational retailers have just simply withdrawn. And so we're very proud that we've provided those employment opportunities in quite often deprived areas. But to answer your question around how do you preserve the culture, the simple answer is that you have to lead from the top, you have to live those values, and you have to be consistent in them. Because in everything you do, in every recruitment decision you make, you need to have those values in mind. For us, those values were hard work, B&M speed, treating every pound like it's your own, honesty, trust. So, so those are the thought things that we lived and breathed. One of the reasons why I felt comfortable uh, finally stepping down and deciding to start the next chapter of my life is that as I looked around me last year and um, came to that conclusion, that culture was very deeply embedded. And I was confident that even after I'd left, that culture was now a B&M culture rather than a, a Aurora Brothers culture. Yeah, it's the most important thing to do. And there's one other element of it, which I, I just want to perhaps touch upon, which you might find surprising. What we found was that in terms of the senior leaders in the business, in other words, members of the executive committee, operation, store operations director, distribution director, HR director, uh, CFO, IT director, you know, those sort of important functional roles. What we actually found was that as the business went from a 21-store chain to a FTSE 100 company turning over, over 5 billion a year and having all those number of colleagues, it's actually a different skill set that requires different skills from each of those people. And that's not a criticism of any one of those people, but our experience was is that those roles would tend to get replaced by a new executive coming in about every five years. And that's not absolutely not a criticism of the people that left because quite often they were ready to leave because they wanted the next step up. They wanted, for example, no longer to be a store operations director, but now to be a managing director of a another business, albeit perhaps a little bit smaller. 
So as the role changed, I made it my job to make sure that the people in position were the right person for the job. You know, so, you know, that, that cliche about the number one role of a chief executive is to make sure the right people are on the bus. And um, our experience was very different from other perfectly successful businesses where the founder has around him or her the same people they had when they started the business. Uh, and you don't get that, 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 that turnover. Uh, for us, on average, we found about five, six years was the sort of the period before it was ready to bring in a different skill set or frankly, wish someone all the best and let them get on to other things in their career. How was it important? How important was it, sorry, in keeping the strategy and the value simple? Because you said before, people can't even remember the Ten Commandments, how are they expected to remember everything that the CEO Sure. So um, thank you for reminding me that the value that I didn't list, but that's probably because it's just so ingrained, is this obsession about keeping things simple. If you keep things simple, they can be communicated easily, all the way from the boardroom through to the person who's serving a customer at a till. If you keep things simple, you can keep them low cost because complexity brings with it cost and that undermines the model. And indeed, one of the reasons why the larger you get, the more bureaucratic you get, and the more complex you get, the more likely it is that someone like BNM will come in and have your lunch. You know, so so we've the likes of home bargains and uh BM and Poundland, you know, these sort of discount retailers. You know, in aggregate, we're about 15 billion of sales in the UK. I might have that number slightly wrong, but, you know, there or thereabouts. You know, that's as big as one of the big four. And we've grown in a mature market. You know, the, the grocery retailing, um, housewares and consumer goods retailing is, is not a new market. It's, it's very established. Lots of big, big hairy gorillas in the room, whether that's Tesco or as the Walmart as was or B&Q. You know, these are big multi-billion businesses. But the reason why at B&M we obsess about keeping things simple is that we don't want to get to a point where our complexity has allowed somebody else to come in and disrupt us in the way that we've disrupted the other established retailers that we were competing with when we started off. When you say keeping things simple, could you just give an example about how you would focus on doing that? Well, the customer sees it when they look at our prices on the shelf. We don't do high-low. We don't have these you know, really sort of complex calendar of promotions where suddenly thing goes on to two for one and three for two. We don't do points and loyalty schemes where if you're not in the scheme, either consciously or subconsciously, you, you're kind of aware that you're paying more than you should be doing. Why would you do that? So simplicity of pricing is the same everyday low price, whoever you are, whether you're coming in once or whether you're coming in a hundred times. Uh, that's one example. Another example would be just the physical layout of a store. Uh, we've shied away from clothing because we don't want changing rooms and all the complexity around sizes and people wanting to try things and all that involves on the shop floor. In our core B&M estate, we've kept away largely from freezers and chiller cabinets, display rooms, customer service desks, in-store cafes, shop window displays. All these things, they're nice to have, but they add complexity, they add processes, they add cost, you don't need them. And then decision-making in the support center, uh, keeping things simple, delayering a lot of autonomy to individual buyers, individual um, executives who might be doing IT projects or store design. Yeah, I mean, retailing is not difficult. And then, you know, actually, so the late Sir Ken Morrison used to say the same thing, you know, um, I'm paraphrasing now, but he, he, he attributed his success to keeping things simple and just being 
a dumb, simple Yorkshireman selling a retailer as opposed to all the, you know, the, the MBAs and uh, highly intelligent people that are in larger, more established corporates. How difficult was it to, to maintain that discipline, though, both for the business and for you? Because while it, you're saying it now, it makes complete sense. It's so clear. At the same time, there is all these other opportunities potentially for you to invest, whether that's growing online or whether it's new formats or whether it's advertising. So what you find is that um, as chief executive or as a board, you end up just saying no to so many things that people bring to you, whether that's external consultants, whether that's ideas internally generated, or whether it's something somebody might say in a customer focus group or in a uh, customer survey online. We, we do all these things, but we say no to nine out of 10 things. A perfect example would be click and collect. So every management consultant, every observer of retail, every analyst would say, you have to be omni-channel, multi-channel, click and collect. You don't have to be. And actually, don't underestimate the complexity and cost that brings to a transaction. So let's just take a five-pound toy. Um, you take off the VAT, that's four pounds. Our gross margin on that is something like a pound fifty. Yeah. So every time somebody buys a five-pound toy from us in our stores, we earn a pound fifty. And we've got to pay the rent, we've got to pay the store wages, we've got to get it there, all the stuff that goes on. If alongside that, I also want to offer the consumer the ability to go online, say they want one to be in a, a store at three o'clock tomorrow. For many years, it's changing recently, but for many years, what would have to happen would be a warehouse operative at that retailer would have to go to a shelf in the depot, pick out that one toy, Scooby-Doo plastic toy or something, get it onto a roll cage. That's going to get overnighted to the store. It's then got to be taken off the lorry, put somewhere. And then when the customer arrives, someone's got to find it for them and give it to them. You can't do that for a pound 50. The only way you can earn a pound 50 is where, with respect, the consumer goes to the shelf, picks it off themselves, goes to the door and pays. Job done. So saying no to all these things that are nice to have, but actually mean you end up making no money. And because you make no money, you then can't grow and you can't invest in your business. That's an example of keeping things simple, stupid. And, you know, I'm not here to criticize other retailers, but within B&M's environment, one of the other very large retailers is Argos. As a shopper in Argos, wonderful. You can buy anywhere you want, go to a store, have it delivered, click and collect, you name it. It's a big business, turns over probably 4 billion. I don't think it makes any money. So, you know, as a shareholder, as a chief executive, you, you've got to make sure not only that you employ people, that you um, are successful, but you need to make profits because, you know, every time we were opening a store every single week, that's half a million pounds of capex every time. So it's only with profits that you can grow. B&M reached two key financial landmarks in 2012 and 2014 that changed the business and confirmed its rapid growth. Firstly, in 2012, the private equity firm CDNR bought a majority stake in B&M, and Sir Terry Leahy, the former boss of Tesco, became chairman. Then, in 2014, it floated on the stock market and achieved a valuation of £2.7 billion. So I see that the two, three years that we had private equity, I think in total four years, we had private equity on the shareholder register as being an intrinsic part of our maturing process. For the 10, 12 years that it was a family-owned business, we didn't have board meetings. Uh, there were no board minutes. 
decisions would be made over a kitchen table between myself and my younger brothers, Bobby and Robin, uh, or a quick snatched conversation with a, one of the Exco members in a hallway or, or frankly just sat around at my desk. However, we were now a business that was worth a billion pounds and uh, was growing fast. And so it was important that we started putting in some governance and process around how we run the business. So they, they were helpful in bringing in that, those routines around board meetings, an annual strategy day, uh, board papers that allowed simple and easy understanding of how the business was performing based on data rather than just what was in various people's, um, people's heads. Also crucially, as we approached the point where it was suitable for us to IPO, we had in CDNR board members and shareholders that had been through that process many times before with other investee companies. And so we weren't innocents abroad. And, um, you know, that takes us to the IPO, which uh, I think it was 2012. And um, we IPO'd at a market cap of 2.7 billion. I'm told that was the largest or the most valuable retail business to to first list uh, on the London Stock Exchange. Obviously, plenty of businesses bigger than that now, but as a first listing, it was the biggest and it, it went very well. How do you look back on the private deal? What, why did you do it at that moment? And do you regret doing it given that only a few years later you, you would IPO? Um, don't regret it. And that uh, they brought lots to the table. Uh, another example I've not mentioned is that it was around that time that we went into Europe and uh, we'd never done M&A before in the business and they had. And so they helped with um, the whole process of negotiating a transaction in a overseas current country where it's a different legal system, different language, uh, and there are nuances around accounting, etc. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they brought something to the table. I think it's also fair to say that in bringing them in uh, as partners, I delivered a level of financial security that meant that my extended family and perhaps some future generations would not have to worry about a roof over their head, uh, which I don't mind admitting is, is important. And it also obviously allows a family to start doing some philanthropy and other projects that we're involved in. But I, I, again, I just see it all as a continuum of maturity, family owned and run business, partnership with private equity, listed business uh, in the uh, for a couple of years, and then getting into the FTSE 100, where again, there's a step change in terms of level of governance and process and um, investor relations, et cetera, that's required. So it's just all part of the the process of growing up into a into an adult, uh, as I think about being a... You said that the day of the flow was your proudest day in business. What was it then like as a um, public company chief executive compared to what had been before? So it was a proud day because it was very much a family affair. Uh, my brothers, nephews, nieces, daughters, um, parents-in-law, you know, they were all there for the, the metaphorical ringing of the bell. And I remember saying on the day, I, I had the opportunity to say a few words, thanking all the many uh, professionals who, who had made it happen. I, I remember acknowledging, you know, that uh, for the, the sons of uh, late market traders in Manchester, this, this was beyond anyone's comprehension. But actually, it wouldn't have happened without the upbringing and the coaching that my late father and mother had given us. So it was it was emotional, to say the least. But to answer your question in terms of how did I find running a, a PLC, I actually enjoyed it. You often read about criticism of city scribblers or analysts who don't really know what they're talking about. That just wasn't my experience. My experience is that you know, for a business of that size, where people are investing 
tens of millions of pounds, if not more, in your business. The executives who are doing so, be that an analyst who's trying to understand you know, the merits and you know, the, understand the dynamics of your business, or whether that's a fund manager, um, these are talented, bright people. And in, the, in a large part, they're asking the right questions. And actually, when you're doing investor relations, be that on a roadshow before the IPO, or be that every six months as you go around existing and prospective shareholders talking about the six months gone and the, you know, the six months ahead, um, you're talking about your favorite subject. You're talking about your baby. You're talking about your business. So I enjoyed it. Ironically, the most enjoyable meetings were those where you got asked the most difficult questions because every now and then you'd come away thinking, I need to think about how we do that. Maybe we're not looking at it the way we should be or we're missing a trick some, somewhere. And indeed, I remember my most enjoyable meeting was a one-hour meeting with a hedge fund that had gone short of B&M stock. So across the table, you had, I think there were five executives. They'd make a, made a big punt that we were overvalued. They were short of the stock. And you know our job over that meeting was to point out that all the things they thought were wrong about the business, but they'd misunderstood or they were misconceived. You know, gave one great pleasure to find out a few months later that they'd closed out the short and had actually lost money on the trade rather than made money. So, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it. How much did your job change and how difficult was it to maintain that discipline that you've spoken about when, and I might be wrong here, but the, the opinions about what you should do as a business presumably increased tenfold once you, you were publishing your financial results and there was a whole load of analysts following you? I was very fortunate, Graham, because I had uh, two wonderful non-exec chairs and I had very supportive independent directors on our board. So Terry Leahy at first and then Peter Bamford thereafter. And both of them are retailers and both of them understood the, f- the very firm line between non-executive roles and responsibilities and executive roles and responsibilities. And so I didn't have to deal with um, too many cooks spoiling the broth or uh, a non-exec chair stepping on our toes in terms of the executive management team, whilst at the same time, they did a wonderful job in terms of providing advice, support, guidance where we wanted it, or pointing out where perhaps we were lacking in some governance. And, and similarly with um, the independent directors, too many to list now, but um, whether it's around nomination committee, which is recruitment and appointment appointing senior positions, whether it's around remuneration or whether it's around audit and sort of risk management, all very supportive, all knowledgeable, and um, we had the right people around the table. So in a sense, I'm fortunate, but I'm I'm aware that there are other people who've been in that hot seat and have not had the benefit of that and have found it all the more difficult. The last way I'd answer your question is, particularly when you get into FTSE 100 and there's that bit more governance around it, the chief exec should probably expect to spend a fifth of his or her time on investor relations, group board matters, and then some of the subcommittees that go alongside that. Alongside that discipline, you did make investment in, in new areas. I mean, the Heron Foods deal, France, Germany. Germany obviously faced challenges and, and you unwound it. How did you decide when to make those investments? And when, take the Germany example, for example, when did you then decide actually to sort of row back? The timing was based on when we felt that the UK business would not suffer by any potential distraction either by myself or by some of those senior managers on overseas um, subsidiaries. And 
when we first went into Europe, by then, frankly, a lot of the important decision makers in B&M had reached their 10,000 hours each. So whether that's the toy buyer or the pet care buyer or the DIY buyer, or whether it's the lady who lays out each new store and decides what the signage is going to look like and where the tills are going to go, or whether it's the person who's dealing with the Christmas peak in uh, the distribution centers, each of those hugely important people in the team had done 10,000 hours and were able to carry on doing it without too much oversight from, for example, myself or the CFO. And so that created the management bandwidth for us to be able to deploy the model in other markets. As you have heard from Simon Aurora in this episode and our previous episode, family has been a key part of the B&M story. Simon Aurora built B&M along with his brothers, Bobby and Robin. So how important has their relationship been to the success of B&M? And what's it like running a business with your brothers? It's absolutely the foundation of our success and B&M would not be the success it is today without the strength of that sibling relationship. Um, so I'm the eldest of three brothers. I can share with you that um, we were taught as kids that one plus one equals 11. Uh, in other words, there's a synergy that is achieved by working together. And I, um, when I meet business people, I say that that synergy may be, you know, an incredible relationship between a chief exec and perhaps a CFO, or it might be a husband-wife team. It might be two friends from school that have gone on into business together. But um, if you can get it right, you can get a huge amount of value from it. And for me, the important aspects of that relationship and the way that we made it work were firstly, a very clear understanding of who does what so that you're not stepping on each other's toes. For us, Robin Aurora, my youngest brother, he was in charge of all the FMCG and grocery buying. Bobby was group trading director and I did everything else. And I didn't interfere in those other two. And likewise, they didn't interfere in, 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 in my, my side of um, the workload. The second aspect that's important is trust. Without trust, either in the competency or in just how they operate ethically in business, then you're not going to have that synergy. And then the third, which is equally important, is an equal level of work ethic. If you have siblings in business together and there are different work ethics where someone's very much nine to five, I wanted to take four or five weeks holiday a year, whereas somebody else is you know, working every hour that God sends, it's not going to work. You're going to have tensions. I was very fortunate in that between us three siblings, all three of those boxes, you know, trust, uh, work ethic, and then, you know, an understanding of not to interfere with each other's responsibilities that existed for us. And I also don't want to underestimate the broader support of the extended family. So sister-in-laws, my wife, for example, all of whom sacrificed in terms of either our physical presence or our emotional presence around the family kitchen table uh, for prolonged periods. Because, you know, inevitably when we were together as a family, the brothers would go off and start having a business conversation in the middle of the main course. Uh, and um, our long-suffering children and spouses would just have to put up with it and roll their eyes as, as usual. But, you know, they, they, they were all, all the spouses were to an extent involved in, in various projects in the business as well. So it was very much a, a family affair for many years. How important is, is that family side of things with the spouses 
generally for a business leader and, and the, the support that you get and also helping to keep you grounded. So I, it's, I hadn't thought about this until you've asked that question. It's just occurred to me, I've just realized that um, whether it's my wife, Shalini, or my two sister-in-laws, um, Shug and Anisha, um, all three of them come from business families. And I wonder whether that's chicken and egg. I wonder whether the reason why the three brothers ended up marrying those lovely ladies is because we have shared values around the importance of the family business and working hard and trying to be the best you can be, as opposed to just being an accident. I don't think it's an accident. So, yeah, I um, I I completely believe that without a stable home situation, any business leader is going to have an uphill battle because you know if I have friends who've been through divorces and had you know all sorts of difficulties in their personal life. I'm in awe of how they maintain their business obligations and their, you know, continue their business success with all that crap going on at home. Mm. I couldn't do it. Um, and I am the first to acknowledge that myself and my brothers were very fortunate in that we had loving, stable family situations at home. How important was being brothers in that level of trust? Is it possible to have that level of trust that you've got in Bobby and Robin if they weren't brothers? Yeah. So the, when I mentioned earlier that um, that one plus one equals 11 dynamic can happen between husband and wife, two school friends, two colleagues that have worked together for years and years. Absolutely. Trust is not defined by family relationship. In fact, I, <laughs> I say this, a smile on my face. There are plenty of families where they frankly don't trust each other with a nickel, never mind um, the family business. Simon Aurora has offered plenty of wisdom in this podcast, but it's not just what he has learned from doing business himself but it's also from the books he has read and the people he has worked with. It seems like he has been constantly learning, so it's interesting to hear him talk about who he has learned the most from. Too many to list. Um, So one of the things I should share with you is that throughout the 17 years, I would go to regular industry networking events, dinners organised by some of the professional services firms, I remember going to multiple awards dinners for Fast Track 100, Profit Track 100, you know, the, the various um, events that take place, because I take the view that you can always learn. And um, so whether that's through networking, whether that's through um, just in, when you're interviewing people, just learning about how other businesses and other business leaders uh, do things, and then reading. I would say that if you look at the bookshelf in my library, the most common style of book is biographies. Quite often, they're biographies of business leaders, whether that's John D. Rockefeller or whether it's Sam Walton through to more up-to-date stuff like um, uh, Elon Musk or, or Steve Jobs. You can't but learn. I, I read you as well, you like to travel as well. Is that is that part of the learning experience as well, seeing other parts of the world? Yeah, so I I think it's helpful having an extroverted, open view of the world rather than an introverted sort of inward looking view of the world so and not just the world of the business so as you're running your business i think it's important for the chief executive to be constantly aware of what the competitors are doing what's happening in other geographies indeed what's happening in other industries and i would say that some businesses lose their sharpness as they become too inward looking and it's all about opinions and what's happening in the organization rather than what's happening outside so for me, you know, if you were to ask me my hobby, it's probably travel. In many ways, that expressed itself in those mid-1990s when Bobby and I would go to China, India, Brazil, 
Indonesia, Thailand, Pakistan, looking for product that we could sell to UK retailers through to just, you know, when running B&M, we'd make a point of going to the States to see what retailers were doing there, going around Europe, going to trade fairs around the world. Yeah, it's, it's important to be outward looking because the world is constantly changing and there's always an opportunity to learn. Have you ever had anyone you consider a mentor? I've never had a formal mentor or any one person that I would give that sort of description to other than my like father. Both for Bobby and myself, the way we think about business, it's, it, it, was, it, it was absorbed through 17 and 15 years respectively of listening, observing and being at the kitchen table. How important was YPO to you? Because you were, I think, I'm not sure if you still are the chairman of the... the not, I, I, I was. So you were. Uh, so. I, I should probably explain what YPO is. So it's, yeah. a, it's a network of chief executives. It's, it's a global network, the largest uh, of any such network. And the way it works is that it's organized by chapter, each chapter being a, typically a region or a city. And the members are chief executives of businesses and you rotate the workload. So... Uh, Pretty much everyone has one year of being chair, another year of perhaps um, having to organize the education events or the membership events, uh, the membership recruitment, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, I, I've been in YPO for some 23 years now, and it's a perfect example of the learning process that I think is important by looking outwards. Because, for example, in the northwest of the UK, which is a chapter that I'm a member of, there are about 40 members across every single sector, lots of different types of businesses, B2C businesses, B2B businesses, some medium-sized businesses, some very large businesses. But each of those business leaders has their own unique style, approach, story. Why wouldn't you want to learn from them? So for me, an essential part of that learning process, both locally in the Northwest, but also because it's an international organization with international events as well, you can go to an event anywhere around the world, meet other YPOs and swap notes on what's happening in their industry, what challenges they're facing, what successes they've had, and you learn all the time. How much has that helped you with being a CEO? Because a common thread in the interviews that, that we've done is that you know, it can be quite lonely at the top. And also dealing with this idea of the court of the CEO means there's, there's all this pressure and attention on you as well. Is it really helpful having somewhere where you can share those experiences as well as learn from people. It's hugely valuable. And so what I'd say is that if I had something troubling me or was unsure about something, I'm very lucky in that I could either go to my siblings, my brothers, and ask for their opinion, which I would value. But equally importantly, I could go to my YPO forum and ask for their opinion or ask whether they've experienced a similar dilemma or situation. And a YPO forum is a subset of that chapter I explained, which was regional, and so if you had about 40 members in the northwest of the UK, we then break that down into about five or six forums. And you meet as a forum, the same people, eight to 10 people once a month. You can't be in the same industry. So you've got no competitors in the room. And you discuss what's on your mind in your business, knowing two things. One, there's no competitor in the room. And secondly, it's 100% confidential what's discussed. Whatever is discussed at that meeting is never repeated outside those four walls which allows you to be really open and honest about what's going on. And that allows for a type of input or advice that is a little bit different from advice you pay for. Because if you went to a, an accountant or a lawyer or a corporate financier with those questions that might be on your mind or a recruitment consultant, 
however good they might be their job, how much um, integrity they've got, ultimately the commercial reality is that they're in business. They're in business to earn fee income. And so you always wonder whether the advice that you're getting is as unbiased as it perhaps could be, but also is as broad and holistic as it needs to be rather than purely from a accounting lens or a legal lens or a corporate finance lens. Let's now bring this story to 2022. Having heard Simon Aurora's passion for B&M and building businesses, you may be wondering why he stepped down as chief executive. This is what he says. I was coming up to 18 years of being chief executive of B&M. The business had just had pretty much its best ever year. Uh, the share price was uh, really, really strong. And so clearly investors were also perfectly happy with how the business was performing. I was of the opinion, and I remain of the opinion, that the culture was really strong throughout the business, through Exco, through the one or two layers of middle management, all the way down to the shop floor. I was also fortunate in that around the boardroom table, in our CFO, Alex Russo, we had a potential successor to me, very capable and unlike an external hire, the board was very comfortable with and investors would be comfortable with because Alex had been in the business a couple of years, shareholders had met him, the board were familiar with him and had seen him operate. I obviously worked um, very closely with him over that two years. And so lots of boxes were ticked. And Peter, our non-exec chairman, said something really kind at my leaving dinner, actually. He said, rather than sort of blowing smoke up your backside in terms of how the business is done, he acknowledged that um, as chief executive of Futswana Company and quasi-founder of the business, I left on my own terms. I left at the time of my choosing rather than at the time of a corporate governance misstep or uh, poor trading or a share price correction. There's never a good time, but... I would say leaving when everything's going well and the business is in good shape and you're passing the baton over to a safe pair of hands, that's a better time than than when those things don't apply. So how do you feel now about what to do next? Because you touched on Orion and you said a year a year after that you were you were ready to go again. So how are you feeling now? That's a great that's the million dollar question. So uh funny enough, it's been a year. In that year, I've pretty much taken a sabbatical from business. I uh, did a lot of travel with with Charlie, my long-suffering wife. Uh, it is only in the last uh, few months that I've started to think about what's next. I think what I'd say to you is that at the moment, it's a bit of a blank page. I am still engaged by the world of business. I want to remain in the world of business and cut into the chase whilst I'm not. I don't have anything immediately in, in mind as yet. Uh, I'd love to buy another business. And whether that's a turnaround or whether it's a large business or a medium-sized business, Time will tell. That's probably not what's important. But what's important is that I want to remain engaged by the world of business because, frankly, it's fun. Can I ask about Wilco? It was well reported that you were you were at least interested in that area. Was that we talk about buying a business? Was that somewhere where you felt you could have got back involved? Um, no, I I'm a firm believer that once I'd left B and M, I'm out and leave it to the team. However, I am somebody who's been in that sector of UK retailing for 17, 18 years. And you'll be unsurprised to hear that I got some phone calls from journalists asking me what I thought of the situation, just as an industry insider or as an industry observer. And I expressed the opinion that it was a real shame that here's a business that was, I don't know, 70 odd, 80 years old, second or third generation, 
that had come to that state of affairs. And um, I opined what I believe, which is that there were two or three things that had done wrong. One was that it had not understood the popularity of retail parks. You know, Wilco sells a lot of DIY, paint, wallpaper. You want to be able to just carry that to your car rather than a mile to a multi-story car park at the end, other end of the town centre. I also happen to think that it had um, lost its credentials as a, as a discounter because when Bobby and I bought B&M, 21 shops, 50 million turnover. Wilco was several hundred shops, hundreds of millions of turnover. Poundland was hundreds of shops. Home Bombings was hundreds of millions of turnover. You know, we were the minnow. And on one analysis, um, Wilco run differently should not have allowed B&M to exist. You've spoken about business cycles. Given you've stood down, given, uh, as you've touched on over the years, the family has sold down its interest, does that mean you now think the cycle is going to get more difficult for discount retailers and B&M? Uh, no, not at all. So um, the reason why over time the family has sold down and divested of B&M is because one of the things that my brothers and I have always been very clear on is that we did not see B&M as a multi-generational business. Um, we did not want a situation where you could have eight, nine, ten cousins, the next generation, in the business, fighting like cats in a sack as to who as to who gets which job and how much they're paid for that job. That you know, the strength of our family relationships is probably the most important thing. And whether that's the generation above and what that gave me and my brothers, whether it's the success and harmony within my generation, or indeed the the loving relationships of the next generation, I we didn't want to risk that by having a situation where you've got eight, nine, ten cousins competing for two or three top jobs. And so given that you've decided that you don't want the next generation going in, and you know, I don't want to be running a business and owning it when I'm 80 years old, the logical thing to do would be just to exit gradually over time. And I also happen to happen to think that 18 years is a good innings. It's um it's a long time doing the same the same job. And yeah, I, I'm looking forward to the the excitement of a fresh challenge, a new business that might be in a slightly different, well, almost certainly be in a different product category or um, even geography. Does becoming an investor interest you in other entrepreneurs and businesses? And do you think good entrepreneurs naturally are good investors? It's a different skill set. I think that um, there is a risk for some entrepreneurs that if you invest in early stage quasi startup businesses, that you probably won't be able to help yourself but getting involved in actually running it. Because one of the features of entrepreneurs is they, they can tend to be control freaks. And so I could see a situation where I invest in a, a very early stage business and end up getting sucked into running it. And I certainly don't want to be running a business five, six days a week, seven days a week. And I also think that that sort of getting sucked in is risky around the relationship with the person who's meant to be running the business. Because again, you end up with two, two cooks in the same kitchen. So I think I'd be more comfortable investing as a shareholder in a medium-sized business, medium-sized, I don't know, 50 million turnover plus, where there's a established proven management team, a proven model, and my involvement could be limited to a day a week. So when I say to you that I am looking for another business to get into, it's as perhaps as a non-exec chair, a day a week, maybe some project-based, it might go a bit more than that. But um, I don't necessarily feel the need at my age, um, I'm in my mid-50s, to be 365, seven days a week, um, consumed by growing a business again. Would that be retail or other sectors? I have an open mind, but um, 
I'm respectful of the adage, stick to what you know, whilst at the same time, the view that don't just go off and do the same job again, because if you're doing that, why did you leave the last one that you loved? So uh, it needs to be different, but perhaps not so different that I end up losing my shirt on uh, a, a bad investment. What other businesses or business leaders do you admire? So I admire founders because starting a business is the hardest thing. I'm respectful of the fact that I'm not really the founder of B&M. I found B&M and changed it. So it's slight subtle difference. And so what I'd say to you is that um, whenever I meet somebody that founded a business and then grew it to a large business, huge amount of respect because the skill set around being employee number one and, you know, day one of the business through to leading an organization with tens of thousands of uh, colleagues, that's quite a varied skill set. And that flexibility, that adaptability is something that I admire. You've been listening to Business Leader with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. For more business analysis and interviews, visit businessleader.co.uk or sign up for our newsletter, Off to Lunch, at businessleader.co.uk forward slash newsletter.